Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Everybody loves a parade, but does everyone love a military parade? We'll take some calls on President Trump's idea to outdo Bastille Day at 312-923-9239. A transgender movie with a transgender star, film contributor Milo Stalik reviews A Fantastic Woman, and we'll think about housing as a human right with the National Public Housing Museum. And don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Military parades are an idea that goes back to ancient times, and lots of countries still have them. But it's not a tradition in the U.S., and President Trump's idea to start a military parade in Washington has set tongues wagging. We're going to take some phone calls today at 312-923-9239, and I've got two guests who've written about the idea. First, let's go to Jake Novak, and Jake is a senior editorial columnist for CNBC.com who wrote... President Trump's military parade is a brilliant political move. Jake, why is this so? Well, there's an imagery of patriotism that works for presidents, that always does, even when those who might be commenting, you know, commenting on, on what they're seeing is negative. Uh, and that was a, a case that we learned with President Reagan, and I know the country's changed a lot since Ronald Reagan was president, but there were so many times when the White House, during his years uh, in office, was smart enough to never really put him at any public events that weren't patriotic in that image, in the, in the optics way. And there were often times when people in the White House would call 60 Minutes or, or other journalists and say, thank you for running that piece where you were criticizing the president. They'd say, why? So, well, you know, you had him on an aircraft carrier. You had him with a huge American flag in the back. You had him with uh, B-2 bombers flying overhead. So for President Trump, just on a political level, and you don't have to support President Trump or, or be against President Trump to understand that there's a lot of positives that could come along with something like this. For him. And you also make the point that, like, the whole veteran universe will like this, and these are Trump voters. Well, you know, whole is a big word. I, I don't want to speak for 100% of veterans. Uh, I certainly wouldn't do that. But, you know, you, you take a look at the exit polls from the lowly election, and veterans were just about the strongest uh, source of support for President Trump. They went for him 60% uh, to 34%. Uh, over Hillary Clinton. And I do think veterans will like it. I know you, it's very it's, listen, <laughs> veterans are an incredibly eclectic group. I mean, thank God we still have veterans uh, alive even from World War II. So, of course, you're going to be able to find with the, with the fishing net quite a few veterans who say they won't like it. But I do think that the veteran community in general will like it. I don't know if they'll show up in polls or not. You know, polls, as we learned in the last election, aren't exactly always, always accurate. But I do think that this is something that veterans will like. And then for somebody like me who's not a veteran and really respects veterans and lives in a, in a blue state city like New York City, 
I feel very, unfortunately, disconnected too much of the time from veterans. I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, some part of my childhood, which is a big Navy town, and we really respected and had some connection with the veterans. And when I moved to New York, kind of missed that. So I think that there's a good segment of the population that really likes this and is sort of starving for it. And uh, they may not show up in the polls and on the news stories, but, but they're there, and we learned about that in the last election. All right. We'll take some calls from people who uh, have some ideas about what they think about a military parade in Washington, D.C., the number is 312-923-9239. Also with us is Robert Bateman. He's a military historian and a fellow at New America. He was in the military for 25 years with the Army doing a military strategy. And he wrote in Esquire, I called around, I spoke to generals. None of them want a parade. Thanks for joining us, Robert Bateman. Thank you for having me. Um, um, but it wasn't just the generals. My, uh, my email was just absolutely flooded by my peers, um, mid-grade officers, junior officers, enlisted. Uh, There is no soldier ever, like since Caesar, who likes a parade. (laughs) Are you sure about that? Because uh, they're they're still marching all over the planet and people are applauding. uh, Right. It's not because they want to march. I mean, you've heard of the term martinet, right? Sure. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a term of derogatory connotation. And he was a French military officer who was really big on marching. Uh, there's a reason that word is still used. I mean, doesn't the military already do plenty of, you know, marching type things? We have No, two national... not even vaguely. What, what about when a head Basic of state comes? Training. When a head of state comes and they review people uh, at the White House, the, the, the president waves the military certainly. in front of a bunch of people. Certainly, we have we have here in D.C. Um, the old guard, the Third Infantry Regiment, which is uh, to use the terms to use the term that was used in a in a classic movie, Gardens of Stone. They are our Kabuki soldiers. Um, they do performances, but the whole rest of the army is focused on fighting and taking away, and that's just the army, let alone the Marine Corps. Then we all have our ceremonial units, but, uh, yeah, if you're talking about trying to replicate Bastille Day in an American context, uh, the French put about 3% of their armed forces on parade, which was about 8,500 soldiers. So that would be about 40,000 soldiers for us. Really? You want to bring 40,000 soldiers to D.C. to walk down a road? Doesn't seem like a good use of resources. Uh, well, why don't we get some phone calls in here? There's 312-923-9239 is the number to call. And, John, you are on WBEZ. Hi, thanks. I, you know, I heard you were going to talk about this topic, and I immediately recalled something I saw the other day on social media, um, and it was a joke that said, didn't Trump already have a parade in Charlottesville? And that's, I mean, that's a, an inflammatory, kind of obnoxious thing to say. But, but seriously, I think that the perception of the president is not, of this president particularly, is not served by the imagery of, of people marching in the street in any capacity. I think that it smacks of saber-rattling, 
I think it seems like sort of an ominous message he's sending to other nations, absent any tradition for it, to all of a sudden have this big display of military power featuring, you know, rockets and tanks and whatever gear they're going to run down the street. It just is unsettling. I just don't see how the optics of it benefit Trump politically or really make anyone in society feel good. And that's not a that's not a shot at the military. We have. All right. Let let me me get a response from Jake Novak there, who thinks the opposite, that that like even if it's a, um, you know, that really any kind of patriotism is practically good for the president. No, that's a really good caller and a really good point. You know, and I mentioned this in the column. There's a right way and a wrong way to do this. You know, unlike uh, I think a lot of people who watch the news reports and maybe just some of the snippets, I actually watched the whole Bastille Day video a couple of days ago, and uh, about 90% of it is just the troops. Uh, they did have a small portion of it where tanks run down the street. They're like the smaller half tracks and stuff like that. And in each one of those tanks, they made sure that the that there's a there's a soldier sticking out and, and waving and saluting. Uh, and then they did some impressive flyovers with the tri color of the, the French tricolor, the flag, you know, getting with, with like dye or, or the smoke coming out, which is really impressive and fun. Um, so, you know, your caller's point about massive tanks or, or, or rockets going down the street, I would not advise that. And I really don't think that would be in the planning. I don't even know how you would do that logistically in Washington, D.C. And as, uh, you know, my, my, you know, your other guest mentioned, I don't think that we're literally going to go by the same percentages as the French military. I don't think you're going to, you're right. I mean, 40,000 troops down the street is ridiculous. But I do think something along the lines, and I wrote about this, of, you know, a few hundred active duty troops, quite a few of our veterans, certainly the Medal of Honor recipients. I think that works really well for any president. Um, But as your caller also mentioned, you know, you have a segment of this population that's watching this movie that sees Trump as Hitler. I mean, let's just let's just say that that's not that's, this is just a, a fact. You see it a lot on social media, as as your caller mentioned. And for those people watching that movie, it's going to be very very hard for them to see anything like this, in, not in a negative way. And so that that your caller has a very good point there. But my point is. People who see Trump that way are never going to be persuaded to vote for him. They're a lost cause. They're not going to vote for him. So if you're Trump and you've got whatever political capital or whatever opportunity to do something on July 4th, are you going to go for something for the people who might support you and already do support you, or are you going to chase after folks who, who, who never will? So, that, so that, that's really where I'm coming from on that point. Um, Robert Bateman, do you have some thoughts about this? I mean, can it be done tastefully in a way that uh, does garner support for the president. Is that logical? Because if 70% of people say they support the military, a lot of those people are people from the center who could possibly politically support the president. Is, is this some kind of way to separate them from from the from the, the opposition? Well, let's lean back a little bit. I, I, at one point in my career, I was a professor of military history at West Point. And so obviously, I'm looking at, you know, the background to this and, and the, the first big march down down uh, Pennsylvania was uh, the United States Army after the Civil War. And we had a two-day march, 80,000 on the first day, 65,000 on the second day. Um, most of the other marches since then have been held in New York. Most of the other victory marches, um, 1919, almost a year after the end of World War One, it was about 25,000. Um, after World War II, only 13,000, again, in New York City. And, you know, and then, and then in D.C., in, after uh, Desert Storm, it was only 8,000, but that cost about $12 million. Um, and I don't, 
I'm not even sure that that includes the cost of repaving the whole of the road because we brought Abrams tanks. An Abrams tank, an Abrams tank is about the size of like a moving van, but it weighs 70 flipping tons, which really isn't good for normal pavement. Um, well, let's leave them out. <laughs> well, you know, we're going to we're, we're talking about the the kind of things that would be coming down the road. So, you know, is this really good uh, for Trump politically? Well, you know, I'm I'm going to switch from my from my veteran's hat to my historian's hat and and ask the the counterposing question of if the veterans themselves hate parades. Because the, the quote that I, I read, uh, Jake's Jake's column and, and and the statistics he cited were from a were from a magazine or a, a journal or actually a newspaper called Army Times, which is self referential. Um, it is it is not a. It's kind of like getting a survey from Breitbart News or Fox News. You know, do you support the president? Yes. Um, and so it was not exactly um, a viable source for opinions about all veterans. Uh, only the Warrocks can speak for us on that. Uh, let's take another phone call. Gene, you are on WBEZ. And if you're interested in calling, the number is 312-923-9239. Hello, Gene. Hello. What's on your mind? I'm wondering, I heard the number of soldiers mentioned as 40,000, and I think if Trump really wanted to be admired, if he took the cost of a parade and gave that money to the veterans, they might salute him at least for a minute. So you think the cost of the parade should be put into, say, veterans' hospitals or something? It should be given to, I'm sorry, it it should be given to the soldiers who march who he's asking to march. Instead of asking them to march, he should give them some money. Well, let me ask a question. I mean, is is money really an issue here? The military is, I think they're getting a 13% budget increase in this uh, budget deal that's coming down if it goes down like it is. And, it, and they're always getting more money. Is, is money an issue for other than for the city of Washington, which has to repave the roads? Um, oh, Jake. Jake. What, <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, Jerome, I yeah. would really like to lean in on that one. Okay, sure, Robert. Go ahead. Every dollar that is spent on a distraction like this is a dollar that is spent not training soldiers to survive in combat. It's, it's just a zero-sum game. You know, no matter how much you get, and, and there's arguments left and right and center about how much the military should ever have. But any distraction like this, I, we, we have a term in the Army. Uh, let me rephrase that. We had a term. I was, I'm retired now. So uh, called dog and pony. Have you ever heard that? Sure. Dog and pony show. This is a dog and pony show. It detracts from the combat mission and the training for the combat mission. No two ways about that. Um, you know, is the dog and pony show that we get already uh, an effective one for the U.S. military? Because we get um, a lot of air and water shows and that kind of thing and 
there's a couple of holidays and there's a Super Bowl with it, which is all full of military stuff and all our football games are full of military stuff. Um, Jake, what do you think of like the, the military PR angle of this right now? You know, Robert's perspective is, is really appreciated because this is absolutely my experience with real veterans my entire life. Again, mostly in Norfolk, Virginia, which is this big Navy town and the community I lived in, which had some active duty, but mostly people who had recently retired. It's a similar thing with people that I know who are World War II veterans. There is a more than just a quiet dignity that they have. I, there is almost none, none of them. Even if you talk to Medal of Honor recipients, they'll tell you they're not heroes. They, will, they, will, they don't want the dog and pony. And he's absolutely right about that. I, I don't deny that from, that from that standpoint. What I do think, though, is that in a, a more quiet sense, some people in throughout, throughout the country, they may come to retrospectively appreciate it or even appreciate it as it happens. Because as I say, and this is something that a lot of veterans can't understand, and it, it's to their credit that they don't understand it, the, too much of the American people right now do not appreciate the military. And when they get a chance to see the military in a positive light, even when they're being humble, even when they're trying to, to shrug off the accolades, it's a very big positive. And I'll give you an example. You know, Hollywood churned out, what, 20, 25 anti-Iraq war movies in, the, in, in you know, the last decade. Only one of them really actually made money. Only one of them did well, including the Oscar winner at the Hurt Locker. I'm talking, and that might, the one that did well was American Sniper. And it was not a jingoistic movie. I don't care what anybody says. I saw it many times and really looked at it critically. It was a serious movie that did not denigrate our soldiers, did not treat them like idiots or murderers, like basically almost too many other movies did. And it did really well. When I saw that movie grossing as much as it did, I realized, you know, because I, I was one of, I was just like everybody else in this movie. I didn't think that the Republicans had a chance in 2016. I realized that the public is so disconnected from the real stories of the soldiers that they need some way to reconnect. Now, a massive military parade with missiles and rockets and, and, and tanks down Constitution Avenue or Pennsylvania Avenue. I agree with Robert. That's a mistake. But something where at least a large number of veterans are marching down the street and we can look at them and, we can, and, and active duty and we can appreciate them. I don't expect the active duty soldiers and even some of the veterans doing it wanting to leap and do it. But the country is disconnected. And, and again, I, I don't want to bring back the draft or anything. The draft is, does not produce the kind of better military we have now with our volunteer source. But we did lose something. With, with the draft, which was our connection to the armed forces. And I don't think, I think the country still loves the armed forces. You mentioned the 70% number, which I believe is accurate. I think it's stronger than that. And I think the country needs to reconnect. And if Trump happens to politically gain from this, so be it. He's the president. He's going to gain from a lot of things, from, from Air Force One to being able to live in the White House. We have to kind of swallow that. I think there's a greater good here. Robert Jerome? Bateman, sure. You want to respond there? So you know what would be really nice, um, which, which, you know, I can't speak for all veterans or all active duty or anything like that. But you know what we would like? How about Department of Homeland Security, Treasury, Interior, Education, all of Congress, the executive officer, the president? Why don't they do a parade and we get a day off and we get to watch them on TV with free beer? <laughs> there, there is nothing I would like to do than watch hot officials uh, strut down the street. The, um, they may not be able to make the walk, Robert. I don't know if they're in shape. What, what do you think about the whole uh, the Army PR uh, deal right now and the relationship with uh, citizens in this country, Robert? Uh, I'm not a big fan. I mean, I, the... The fact that we were paying money to let the NFL let us 
parade flags and do flyovers and, and things like that. And, you know, that we sponsor in NASCAR. But, you know, I was never a recruiter. And I, I have never been in public relations. So I want to seed ignorance. It may be that they're doing the right thing. I don't think it is. I dislike it myself. But I seed my ignorance that maybe that's a significant part of what we need to do to um, be able to recruit people into the military because, uh, you know, as, as Jake noted, there is a disconnect. Um, we can, we can argue over the nuances of the disconnect and the causes of the disconnect and the, the dates of the disconnect, but there is a disconnect. And, uh, so public relations and there is a key element for recruiting. And I can't argue that. Let's take one more call. And John, you're on WBEZ. Hello, John. Ah, there's a clicky sound. How are you, John? Barb, rather. Hi. This is Barb. Hi. What's your comment, Barb? Well, um, this reminds me of an article I recently read in The Nation by Gary Young called uh, Trump's Appalling Clarity, um, which the idea is that Trump makes uh, things that have already been going on, like how vast our military is and how much is spent on the military budget, $600 billion a year and going up, bases all over the world. And maybe, you know, Americans don't like to think about this, that what our military, how um, overblown our military is and how much uh, it's doing that they shouldn't be doing. So perhaps that's why there's been a reaction to this. Maybe it's getting people to look at how militaristic our country has become. Um, uh, do you think that has happened, Jake? You know, that's a great comment from the caller. That was another point I was going to make. You know, I, I could have written a whole column about how if you're an artist, an ardent anti-military leftist, you should also like this parade. Because, you know, maybe we should take a look at where all this money is going. You know, I, I consider myself a, a pretty hawkish conservative about, about defense spending. But I can tell you right now, I think that we're blowing at least $156 billion a year on, on a lot of our foreign bases that we don't need. You know, we need a lot of some of our foreign bases, but we have hundreds of bases in countries that really, we really don't need them. Um, so maybe we should take a look at all this stuff just to understand where all this money is going. I mean, listen, defense is one of the top three things that, you know, that we spend our money on every year, you know, with, along with the Social Security and Medicare. Now, Social Security and Medicare, the American people of all stripes basically have a very intimate connection with every, every week or so. Um, military, not so much. So that's a big part of it, you know. But... The disconnect is important on a, on a, you know. So I was trying to talk about the positive elements that could come from a connect from from more of a connection, but the, definitely would be more education. You know, during the Gulf War, you could walk from one end of Manhattan to another, and you wouldn't know that we were at war at all. I mean, the only time I saw anything that was recognizable is when I went to the post office around Christmas time and I saw a donation box for cell phones to give to the troops so they could call home. Um, it's too much of a disconnect, uh, and so even if you aren't a, a pro-military, patriotic. Typical patriotic American, maybe you're more of a left-wing person who believes that a good patriotism is scrutinizing our military budget, and maybe we should take a look at what we have. I mean, maybe you should get a watch a parade or get a subscription to, to Jane's and take, and take a look at all the weapons that we have. But we really don't have enough 
education about our military in this country. Robert Bateman, you get the last word here. Uh, well, I have to admit, uh, in, in a mild um, pro-comment for, for the possibility of the parade, uh, almost exclusively because of my past career, uh, the people who, the generals and colonels and majors and captains and sergeants and privates who have contacted me have all been Army or Marines. But a significant sub-portion of them would be willing to pay money to watch the Air Force and the Navy parade just in the way that I, being from Cleveland, watch the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> Robert Bateman is a military historian. He's a fellow at New America. He was a military strategist for 25 years, and he wrote the article, I called around and spoke to generals. None of them want a parade in Esquire. And also with us has been Jake Novak. He's a senior editorial columnist for CNBC. He wrote the article, President Trump's military parade plan is a brilliant political move. Thank you both for joining us and talking about uh, the idea of a military parade for the United States of America. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik, and he will talk about the new transgender movie, A Fantastic Woman. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. Hey, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Well, we've got an interesting film uh, called A Fantastic Woman, and tell us about this. Well, you know, a confession. It's a film that I avoided for a long time. And it was shown in Telluride Film Festival, for example, uh, multiple opportunities to see this, and each time I consciously went to see something else and didn't go to see it. And Why is that? Felix? And the reason was because all I knew about it is that it was, you know, very highly regarded film from Chile, that it had some cachet, and that it was the first performance in a major motion picture by a transgendered woman. And I thought, this is just too smack politically correct. And so it's going to be a mediocre film, which really feeds to the political correctness rather than to the artistry. And I was absolutely dead wrong, which shows you something about how we make decisions, what to go and uh, to see and what not to see, and how prejudiced we are before we go to see it. Now, the director of this, uh, Sebastian Lilo, he, he, it sounds like he's got a pretty good track record and makes interesting movies. He does. He, he scored. Yeah, you overlooked that. I overlooked that. I went to see something else. And, uh, and I'm very, very happy to have finally discovered it. I mean, it's very much to my benefit because it, it's, it's a film with, to which this description, which I just gave to you, that it's the you know, Chilean film about a grieving transgendered uh, woman in a relationship – 
does absolutely no justice because the situation in the film is very simple. Uh, Marina, who is a nightclub singer and also uh, works in a restaurant as a waitress, uh, is in love with Orlando, who is older than her, who is of a socioeconomic status higher than her. He owns a textile company, so obviously he has more money. She's just moving in with him. And on her birthday, as he picks her up from the club where she's singing and they go home in the middle of the night, he gets sick. She doesn't know what it is. Uh, she's trying to get into the hospital. He falls down the stairs, finally gets makes it to the emergency room, and there he dies of an aneurysm. So main character in the relationship is killed off in the first 10 minutes of the film. But then the real subtlety and layered drama of this film begins because Marina is obviously freaked out. Who wouldn't be, right? Lover uh, dies middle of the night while they're in bed. And, uh, uh, and then instead of being allowed to grieve, all of these forces of family and society really come up against her because she's transgendered. So it sounds like the crux of the film is about her establishing herself and just trying to be herself in a situation where everybody else is disregarding her. And and, and she's a non-entity to everybody from the medical people in the hospital to the to his family. Right. Every every segment of society is unable or unwilling to treat her as an individual, which she very much is. And it's to her credit that, and to the movie's credit very much, that she is by no means in this film a victim. She's strong. She's resilient. She's obviously emotionally very overwrought. She bears under these investigations. For example, there's a a really horribly humiliating medical examination that she is subjected to, which the police who get involved because she ran away from the hospital, so they suspect, and there's this cop who says she's seen everything and she pretends to be very sympathetic, but then forces Marina through this very gruesome, humiliating uh, medical exam. She bears under this. She has individuality and resilience and nowhere, know-how, are you forced to, to, to in some way to, 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 to give her your fake and false pity or sympathy? The actress involved here, Marina Vidal, uh, sounds like she does a terrific job. She's pretty incredible. I mean, she's only 28. Uh, you know, like uh, the character in some ways, she has a, a very varied background. She was a hairdresser. She's a singer. Uh, she's she's transgender. Uh, she's now the face of fashion in Chile, of independent fashion, which is really pretty pretty phenomenal, pretty great. And it's the way that the film is really written, layered, and really beautifully, beautifully shot. And the cinematographer here, it sounds like he's done a nice job. People talk about the color, and he places her at the center of all the shots. She's always present. Uh, you know, she, this is not an action movie. It's it's a character study more than anything else. And nevertheless, uh, Daniela Vega, the actress who plays Marina, really has a, a, a really a lot of charisma. I mean, the camera really picks up her inner body uh, energy and tension. When she talked in an interview about doing this role, she said, of course, that it was very difficult for her because there are so many layers that she had to peel off and to, to to go through uh, and to face. 
We're talking about a film, a groundbreaking Chilean transgender drama. It's called The Fantastic Woman. It's opening in several theaters around Chicago right now with film contributor Milo Stalik. Uh, you know, I couldn't remember the last time a, a transgender person played a transgender character in a film in the, in the U.S. I, I was going back and... Now, Hilary Swank was a transgender person in Boys Don't Cry in 1999. Yeah, on Crying Game, but I mean, you know, but, but this, it's not been really uh, handled well. It's always some kind of phony representation. And so it's really great that this filmmaker really gave this actress really room to ex- explore this and, and, and to portray it. I mean, it's a really big step forward. And I would say something also that it says something about the resilience of the Chilean cinema. You know, we have, it's not, not a big country. It doesn't produce many films. But it's really a country on the rise. You have filmmaker like Pablo Larraín, who is involved in the production of this as a co-producer of A Fantastic Woman who made No, who made uh, the really terrific film about Pablo Neruda, Neruda who made Jackie uh, here in the, in, in the U.S. So there's really something happening in terms of the talent and the, the kinds of creativity and the way that Chilean filmmakers are really allowed to explore very interesting themes. Were there any sour notes? I read that at some crucial point in the film, Aretha Franklin's You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman comes on uh, the car radio. Is that, is that too heavy-handed? Not for me. You know, I mean, it doesn't – because the film is very controlled. So it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really plumb your emotions. It doesn't try to manipulate, manipulate you. It allows you to really – and try to understand the the character of Marina instead of sympathize uh, sympathize with that character, and that's there's a big difference because sympathy is cheap. You know, you can all cry very easily and then go home and eat some McDonald's or whatever. Uh, here, you're really faced, forced to really face the way that society is closed off towards accepting individuals just because of their gender. It sounds like this filmmaker, Sebastian Lelio, has a track record of his last film was about a middle-aged person who becomes invisible and is not seen in society. And this is... He is working that angle uh, on a bigger platform. Yeah, I think he likes – he's interested in that moment of people undergoing change in some way, you know, or or really not being – on solid ground, so to speak, so that that, that 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 there's ambiguity to the character that you can explore. Uh, that, that, that you can explore. That's I think that's what kind of interests him, and he does it very well because he really there aren't any big scenes in this. This is not a dramatic film in terms of big conflict. It's really a study in which you see how people act with each other. Uh, Marina, the character, doesn't create any kind of a melodramatic situations. Uh, she's actually uh, quite accepting in terms of what the family is doing with her. They want to throw her out of the apartment. She says, okay, they want her to give the car back. She brings the car back, uh, you know, and she meets the ex-wife of, 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 of her uh, now-dead lover uh, in the parking lot. But so it's not a film that plays on these kinds of melodramatic situations. It's really a film that 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 stays close to a very precise depiction, representation of a character, maybe under stress, uh, you know, and maybe under attack for their identity. 
A Fantastic Woman is opening at several theaters, uh, including the AMC River East 21, the Music Box Theater, and Cinemark Evanston. Miller Stalick, our film contributor, great to see you. Great to be here, Jerome. The Universal Declaration on Human Rights says that housing is a human right. We are going to talk about that next with the National Public Housing Museum. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, one of the founders of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange, is here to let you, clue you in on how to have an international good time. Nice to see you, Nari. Uh, Good morning. Good afternoon, Jerome. Great to be here again. Where are we going first? Uh, We're going uh, quickly to first to London and then to Mexico. Uh, There is actually going to be a talk at the School of the Art Institute by Yuri Suzuki, who is a London-based sound designer. He has a Russian first name and a Japanese last name, but he's (laughs) London-based. And he is a designer of soundscapes, and uh, he's an electronical musician. He's going to talk, give an interesting talk on Tuesday, February 13th, 6 p.m. at the Art Institute of Chicago, Rubloff Auditorium, 230 South Columbus Drive. It might, he's, he's a very interesting creative force. It might be interesting uh, to listen to what he has to say. And we all love sound. Absolutely. We're all listening we do to radio. Yeah. yeah. And, and then idea of design and sound is very interesting. Also, so where do we go to Mexico here? Yeah, we go to Mexico also. The National Museum of Mexican Art over in the Pilsen Pilsen neighborhood over here is doing, uh, is presenting works from Cineteca Nacional uh, uh, of Mexico and Cine Mexicano de la Epoca de Oro, which is a Mexican golden age of cinema uh, film series. And it will be screening the film Macario, which who I I believe was uh, uh, was directed by the legendary musician uh, legendary director of Mexico Roberto Galvan. Uh, it's a film that goes back into the back into the eras of the fifties and the golden age of Mexican cinema. Uh, it might be an interesting thing to catch that out at February eighteenth at one thirty p.m. National Museum of Mexican Art, 1852 West 19th Street in Chicago. Finally, we are going to chat about housing as a human right. It is in the Universal Declaration for Human Rights, which I just mentioned. It's also in the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. And I am glad that there is going to be a National Public Housing Museum here in Chicago. Absolutely. Uh, housing, uh, public housing is a global phenomenon. Almost all countries around the world do it. Uh, we have a particular approach. We have had a particular approach here in this country to public housing and subsidizing housing. And none other than Lisa Lee, who will be the, who is a, you know, a, a great activist here in the Chicago cultural scene and art scene, is actually leading this effort for the National Public Housing Museum. Thanks for joining us, Lisa Lee. 
I'm so happy to be here. Uh, tell us something about the National Public Housing Museum. I know it's been in the works for a long time. It's going to have an, uh, an interesting place for a museum. Um, what's, what's going on with it? Yeah, well, the National Public Housing Museum is going to be the first cultural institution in the United States dedicated to interpreting the American experience of public housing. And we are going to be located in the last remaining building of the historic Jane Addams Homes. It's located on the near west side of Chicago. And it really was, you know, the result of the relentless dreams of public housing residents who said, we need to save one of these buildings that is coming down and create a museum where our stories are told, where we control the narrative, and we can really grapple with housing as a human right. And these uh, Jane Addams uh, housing uh, um, places, uh, houses, were 32 buildings, 1,000 units built in the 1930s, and this is the last one. And it's a pretty handsome brick structure, and you guys are redoing it, and you'll be in it soon. Yes, in around a year. And it really was one of the most ambitious and beautiful projects of uh, Chicago's very own um, John Hollibird, an important architect. Um, and it was a demonstration uh, housing for the rest of the nation. Now, you've got an exhibit up. Our friends at uh, Arca Center, uh, 625 North Kingsbury, uh, have a beautiful exhibition space. And you have an exhibit called Housing as a Human Rights Social Construction. What's it about? Yes, it's actually in Archie Works, which Archie is Works. at 625 North Kingsbury. And it's an exhibit that tells the ambitious but also troubled history of public housing. It includes you know, our democratic commitment to the public and common good, but also of many dreams deferred. And when visitors come to the exhibit, they'll encounter salvaged artifacts from public housing projects, oral histories and memories of residents, historic objects and art, all organized under the themes that speak to the daily lived realities of a great diversity of people who have lived in public housing. Uh, Lisa, this is Nari. I'm uh, interested in uh, in your potential for advocacy work that you're doing. Our image of public housing is that this is some sort of a policy for poor people, but we also have uh, these uh, tax write-offs, tax incentives for uh, for home, for home buying in this country, which is really also a form of public housing in a way you could say, uh, one could say. Uh, could you uh, give us a little bit of idea of how you want to do that? How do you want to bring that message up to that this is not just something that's for that's about poor people but it affects almost all of the americans yeah no absolutely um you know, there is this misconception and a lot of stereotypes about people who are benefiting from government handouts, um, families are living in poverty. Uh, but actually, you know, the government has subsidized housing for almost all of Americans. You know, the sort of tax um, credits that people get for buying second homes, for example, from the government is also a form of uh, subsidized government uh, housing. Uh, but for us, the issue is really about where can we reimagine our commitment to the public good, to the commitment to everyone to have a, have a home? And for us, storytelling, cultural activism need to be linked to the new efforts around creative, innovative public policy around housing. And so as a museum and cultural institution, we really believe that um, a lot of political change begins actually with cultural activism, with people coming across, you know, and bridging barriers and boundaries to share their stories about uh, the desire and need for a home. Uh, 
You know, I think public housing has this uh, reputation, particularly here in Chicago, when the high-rises came as something that was fostering crime and was a disaster, and we had to reimagine these things and break them up and uh, make them low-rises and everything, which has been which has happened. And uh, is is um, is there any sense of community in public housing anymore? It seems like the thing that people remember affectionately about public housing uh, from the old days before the high rises was a sense of community and just building uh, connections. Yeah, no, absolutely. We have a lot to learn from the communities that were created out of public housing. Um, and there's a lot of work that's being done on that. And even though the plan for transformation and urban renewal sort of took down a lot of these projects, those community bonds are still incredibly strong. Um, and, you know, the thing about public housing is it's not just about housing or about high rises. Um, in order to really understand the history of public housing, we have to to actually look at the injustices of capitalism, the long-term effects of racism, the legacy of slavery in our country, um, you know, sort of the questions of segregation, and, you know, how is it that we came to be um, in, to live in a city where we are in such a need and deep shortage of housing. Um, and it sort of goes back to, you know, Burnham when he knocked on Jane Addams' door and said, hey, I have this great idea for a city, but where do the poor people live? You know, and we're still sort of grappling with that question today. I was looking up uh, some of the history of the Jane Addams houses, the first public housing in uh, this area that your museum is going to be located in. And at first, African-Americans didn't get in. They were not, they were not allowed. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it was, you know, um, Harold Ickes, who at that time had created something called the Neighborhood Composition Rule. And that was sort of the beginning of segregation um, in our country, where public housing was built to sort of reflect reflect what the composition of a neighborhood was, um, the sort of demographics. And so, you know, at that time on the near west side, there were not very many African Americans living there. And so a dedicated amount of housing sort of was uh, for other uh, populations. Um, and that's also one of the big misconceptions of public housing that people have, that it actually was made for African Americans. And it wasn't. It was actually made for all Americans. Um, and in the National Public Housing Museum, we'll have three restored apartments that reflect the th different generations and diversity of people who lived in public housing, but then also tell the story of how it became uh, racialized because of the um, interconnected histories of poverty and racism in our country. Lisa, there seems to be also, uh, you know, the misconceptions about public housing could also be about uh, uh, badly designed public housing and badly planned, with which were not democratically planned, and there was not really a lot of wisdom of design strategy going on. Could this be also an opportunity for better designed public uh, housing and designed for social impact, for positive social impact and design, uh, design strategy conversation. Uh, are you planning on doing anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. We want to work with architects and designers, and we do now. Um, we have a partnership with Archiworks, um, who they share an office space with us and participated in the creation of this exhibition. But Nari, I think it's also important to remind people that 
uh, you know, housing is not just about architecture and design. Um, in the exhibit, when you come, there is a big exhibit about community policing, for example, and the Chicago Tenant Control. Um, and in many ways, in order to understand what happened in public housing in Chicago, you have to look to the absence of adequate public safety measures, including corrupt police acting with impunity, um, you know, to really excavate, you know, Correct. what was happening in public housing. And so part of the exhibit, um, you know, really is devoted to thinking about community policing, uh, to thinking about sort of the histories of entrepreneurship um, of public housing, looking at the built environment, of course, through art, um, and also these beautiful Edgar Miller sculptures that we'll be bringing back to uh, the Jane Addams homes. So the exhibit runs until February 22nd, uh, so people should get in before the before it's gone here. And I know on February 20th you're having a book event with Ben Austin, and he's doing a high, he's got a new book on high rises about Cabrini Green, and you're you're having a book event there. That sounds like fun. Yeah, that's going to be a spectacular event. Ben Austin has been one of the, you know, the sort of great champions of us asking the hard class, hard questions that need to be asked about public housing. He has a new book out about Cabrini Green. We're going to have a, a free dinner and a book discussion with him, Audrey Petty, and also um, Cabrini activists. So people should come out to that. Well, thanks very much for joining us, and it's great to hear about the doings of the uh, National Public Housing Museum on its way, and um, uh, it's up and running right now at uh, 625 North Kingsbury. Dr. Lisa Lee, Executive Director of the National Public Housing Museum, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Jerome and Nari. Thank you. Nari Safavi, have yourself a great international weekend. It's been great to see you, and uh, another fine weekend passport. It was a privilege to be here. Monday on Worldview, we are going to talk with the Turkish Consul General in Chicago and discuss the war in northern Syria. There's a new new offensive that uh, the Turks have against the Kurds, which are U.S. allies in the region. So we're virtually fighting our own NATO ally there. So we will have an interesting conversation about what's going on in northern Syria on Monday on Worldview. Also, we're going to talk a bit about another uh, conflict that is the U.S. is involved in. We'll be talking about Yemen, and there's a new bill to uh, get some congressional action to uh, acknowledge what's going on in Yemen. We'll talk about that Monday on Worldview as well. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Daniel Musisi for curating our music. And Amber Fisher for working with us this week as well. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to we've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.